Oh, hello to the housing community. Um, we are doing a kickoff series and are delighted to welcome you to um, our first podcast. So we are um, have gathered a panel of experts um, that are kind of thinking deeply about trauma-informed care, trauma being trauma-responsive, um, that whole field of how does trauma affect our work in attorney housing. And I'm delighted to have um, kind of a panel to introduce some core concepts today um, around that. Before I get into introductions, I do have a few disclaimers. Um, the first would be that this area, this field, is kind of a new area of study, right? So as we are um, wrestling with concepts and looking at how this works, um, people are experimenting, they're thinking deeply, um, and there's shifts and um, changes and turns along the way. So as our panelists share what they're doing now, um, that might change in a few months as they learn more, try something different. So this is an organic um, process, and we're all kind of learning together through it. My other big disclaimer um, is that this is not professional um, advice in any way. So as you're listening to and kind of engaging in these topics, um, know that you're hearing um, folks think deeply about it, but it's not meant to be thought of as professional advice. So with that, we'll kind of get into the heart of our topic. Would you mind introducing yourselves briefly? We'll start with Suzanne from Foundation House. Sure. Hello, my name is Suzanne. I'm the executive director and founder of Foundation House Ministries, and we are located in Cleveland, Tennessee. Thank you, Suzanne. Suzanne has a bunch of degrees and expertise <laughs> in this area as well. I so, what you could find online. Family studies, as well as I'm a certified family trauma professional as well. Awesome, thank you. How about our friends at Lifehouse? Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Absolutely. My name is Valerie Harkins, and I am the director of programs with Lifehouse of Houston. Um, I am a licensed social worker myself and just a great enthusiast for the work that we do here in our population. And I am Hillary Anderson, and I am the program coordinator at Lifehouse of Houston, and I'm also a licensed professional counselor, um, and we are out of Houston, Texas. Awesome. Thank you to all of you for being with us and for kind of um, being willing to share your best of thoughts with us as we tackle this topic. Today we're looking at, it's more of an overview, we're kind of thinking about how trauma affects brain development. Um, and this is one of like, the fundamental ideas related to um, being tra trauma responsive, trauma informed, is this concept that, that it really impacts kind of brain development. And I have asked Suzanne to take lead on maybe a few just really basic core concepts that you can kind of cling to and understand very quickly um, so that if you're new to the, the idea of trauma-informed care that you can walk away with some kind of clear ideas. So then the first, um, do you want to go ahead and introduce us that way? Foundation House has been open now four years and in the beginning we kind of naively believed that if we could just provide these young women a, a safe home, a loving care, the nutrition they needed, um, that, that they would somehow just magically be fixed, quote-unquote. And we were kind of surprised when it didn't work. And through study and research, we, we, we were really trying to find out why are these girls not 
able to receive what we have for them. It, it, it was almost as if there were walls in their brains blocking them from being able to think future. And, of course, we know that, that, that that's the truth. At, at, at the adolescent age, that they're not capable of forward thinking um, until they hit about the age of 24. And so we knew some of those things were, were playing in. But until we discovered the, the long-term lasting impact of trauma, we really didn't understand what these girls were actually going through. We knew they had experienced traumatic situations. That's, you know, that's why they were here. That's why they found themselves in a position where they were pregnant and homeless and needed a program like Foundation House. But what we didn't understand was that that trauma lasts for, for years and years and as we begin to work with these women and we begin to learn about their, um, their histories, 99% of our clientele have experienced sexual abuse, um, 89% are former drug users, 85% were raised in chronic poverty, um, 76 have open court cases, 76%. And, and so as we, as we really looked at the, their backgrounds prior to coming to uh, Foundation House, we began to see the, the lasting impact of that trauma on them, and, and we began to actively look for ways to mitigate that. How could, we, how, how could we help them deal with the trauma in ways that are going to facilitate their, their growth and their stability? Um, because we were just finding that these girls, they, they were just still living in this hamster wheel of, of survival, of, of panic, uh, of... Um, of fear, no matter how long they stayed with us, it just wouldn't go away until we began to learn about trauma-informed care. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. That's a great, you know, great foundation. I think we all kind of intuitively know that past traumatic experiences are kind of currently impacting the women. So there's this sense, right, that, that what has happened in the past is, is still having an impact. Maybe one of our panelists can kind of speak to the types of trauma that um, they see have women having experienced in the past that, you know, maybe what most frequently or kind of what, what is considered traumatic experiences. Um, Lisa uh, Holmes from Foundation House, I'm here now, and I'm actually at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And driving over here this morning, um, all I could think about was the last probably 10 times I've been to Nashville was for a client. And the traumas that she experienced as I was driving, I could point to a place, you know, this is where she prostituted. This is where she slept out under the sign. This is the dumpster that she went behind to have sex with men. This is the house that she um, brought the gang members over to threaten her children and where they were living. This is the courthouse we go to. This is her bond agent. Um, you know, this is where she went hu hungry and got food. This is the jail that she was in. And every time I would pass a certain spot, I would think of her. And, you know, those things kind of, they stick with me. And you would think someone like her who was having to still live in that as far as criminal charges go and not having her children, she was still suffering the repercussions from those individual traumas. 
but as, as soon as she got to a spot where she could actually move forward and see a light at the end of the tunnel, she got away from our program and came back to the very same thing. Um, so that, to me, trauma is so hard to understand because sometimes it's their only friend. It's their only sense of being. If they are normal or if they are past the crisis, who are they? Um, so I find, I find that um, trauma is familiar to them, no matter what that type of trauma. This is where I shoplifted. This is the Walmart I can't go in anymore. Um, and, and it just goes on and on and on. And she is not even an extreme example. She's just an example of the multiple types of trauma that the girls do. Um, they're calling it uh, polytraumatic experiences, tra repeated trauma of different types. So that's yeah, kind of thank you, Lisa, for making that real for us. I heard uh, someone chime in with the word consistency, that the trauma is the consistent, um, very, you know, the consistent part of their life. Yeah. So um, science tells us that this, this kind of, um, the traumatic experiences change brain chemistry, and that's kind of this fundamental concept as we think about trauma-informed care, that, that brain chemistry has been, has been um, altered a bit. Um, Suzanne, could you speak, speak to that piece a little bit? Sure. When we talk in, um, in group settings, uh, there's a picture of a brain, um, an anthropomorphic brain with arms and a, and a face, and it's in the bathtub taking a bath in, in all of these brain chemicals. And I love that picture because it's so accurate to what is happening. In, in each instance of trauma, our, our brains are so wonderfully designed to... Um, to, to initiate that, that response, that fight, fight, flight, or freeze response. And it fills our brains with these, um, these chemicals to initiate that, to, to make our limbs move faster to help us um, escape from the, the terror or to um, freeze our bodies in place so that we are protected from the terror. What our bodies don't understand is that, um, that, that sometimes those traumas that trigger that response don't, don't need that full level. And so um, the, the fear of, of having to call the TenCare office and be, be, um, possibly get a mean caseworker and maybe I won't know what I'm going to say and maybe she won't be nice to me, that same fear triggers that trauma response in her just as much as, um, it, as if she were running away from a, um, an, an abuser. And so our, our brains just, when we're in a, a chronic trauma environment, our brains become bathed in these chemicals. And what we found is that the longer those chemicals are, are um, active in our brains, they actually begin to do damage. And, and that's what we see as part of the, the trauma process. What we are actually seeing are the impact of those brain chemicals having damaged the brain itself. Um, Sometimes, sometimes these women have been experiencing this kind of, uh, of trauma since they were infants, some, some even in utero. And so, um, so the lasting impact of 
uh, of the brain changes is unbelievable. Yeah, thank you. Valerie, I know I've heard you talk a lot about brain chemistry, and it's something that you, you like to, to you know, uh, think about. Can you offer any additional thoughts around brain chemistry? So sometimes uh, one thing I refer to to kind of give us a visual picture is that oftentimes what we're trying to do is to get to the core of the woman. And then we say that's kind of like a rose that needs to open up. And so in the beginning, that rose is closed and there's nothing but thorns surrounding it. Um, and it requires nothing but the right elements and patience and time in order to see that rose come to full bloom and to see its glory and its beauty. And so what we often find is that that directly correlates with us getting to know this woman and her brain chemistry. And so what we have found is the pathway to access the, the, the real person on the inside is that we've got to understand what's going on on the outside. Uh, and so with that, one of the, the my, my big soapbox, I think that probably our staff is tired of hearing me talk about, is cortisol. And cortisol is essentially... Um, the, the chemical or the hormone, it's referred to both, uh, that's released in our body whenever our body perceives that we're in danger or our brain perceives that we're in danger. So uh, there are many things that will trigger that cortisol response in the body inside the woman that maybe it wouldn't cause that response uh, in us or maybe in someone that's not had a traumatic experience. And so we take brain chemistry and specifically cortisol into account for everything, like goggles that I look through as I'm evaluating the circumstance, as I'm evaluating what food she eats, what food she refuses to eat, her maybe hoarding food, if she is hesitant to talk, if she talks rapidly, um, if she is uh, withdrawn, if she is overly buoyant in her personality. Um, and so we take all of that, and I always want to say, is her brain operating in either fight, flight, or freeze, uh, whether we know it or not? And so from that moment, we take all of our approaches in a very practical way to reduce, reduce cortisol. That's the number one goal for the first two weeks of the program. So what we have found is there are studies done through... Um, uh, Texas Christian University and the Karen Purvis Child Development Institute um, that has shown that it takes two weeks for this woman to have her cortisol reduced to an, a, a degree in which, one, it would be close to normal, and two, she can actually hear us. So essentially what we understand is anything we say for the first two weeks is, is just in one ear and out the other. She's incapable of hearing it. So this brain chemistry thing is really... It's really like our foundation that we start every approach from. Yeah, thanks, Valerie. So I hear this kind of one of the goals being, or maybe the programmatic ways that you think through the program being kind of reducing cortisol. Um, what are some practical ways that that happens? Can anyone speak to kind of what do you do in your program that actually helps bring down cortisol levels? Sure. Well, I can talk about what we do, and then I'm sure others have uh, some other strategies, because we certainly all have strategies that we use. Uh, you know, it starts right away in practical ways. When she first comes in, we give her um, a tour of the facility, so she's not having to wonder uh, the actual floor plan and layout. We let her see things like where the exits are. Um, we do easy things, like we make sure we don't stand in doorways. That way her brain never has to wonder uh, can I get out of this room if I really need to? Um, we offer food and we give water right away before we fill out any paperwork, 
anything at all. And then anytime we do anything with her belongings, for example, if they're going in the dryer, we tell her where those belongings are going and when she'll have access to them again. So, for example, uh, a way to reduce her cortisol when she first walks in would be um, letting her know, hey, we're going to take your clothes and does anything need to be washed and everything needs to go in the dryer right away. That takes about an hour and then you'll be able to take them to your room. And so what we really want to do is right off the bat eliminate all of the guesswork so that everything is very predictable and very understandable to her. Uh, thanks. That was great, Valerie. Maybe we'll have some other suggestions as we go on. Yeah, I appreciate that. This is Hillary. I wanted to chime in on the, on the front part of that. So in Lifehouse, I really work with the women before they get to the home, and that's a huge place where we can reduce cortisol as well. So a lot of times, and I really, I know everyone is different, and sometimes they just show up or whatnot, but for us, we do um, an interview process and kind of talk to them prior to them coming, um, and I do that with them. So really for me, on the front end, the more personal and the more relationship you can build with them that they feel safe, the better. Because if you think about it, they're coming to some random place that they have never, they've never been to, and they're hoping that this is legit and that they're not going to end up in some horrible situation again. Um, so anything that you can do to really give them peace of mind, um, I always give them my personal cell phone number, and oftentimes they'll use it, um, and being able to have that connection piece. And I have found the women that I connect with more on the front end before they come stay longer and do better in the program than the women that we have a more difficult time connecting with. And I think that it really brings their cortisol levels down enough to the house parent or whoever's meeting them there in the beginning really has a has a, clean, a, a better canvas to work with because they are a little calmer. Yeah, thanks. No, I think I, I did a little bit of a disservice and that I forgot to mention something so core to what we do here on the subject of cortisol. And it, it uh, the reason that I say this is because it bursts the process that Hillary does on the front end. And that's this elementary basic understanding that is um, an if-then scenario. So if she has high cortisol, then her amygdala turns on in her brain. And the amygdala is the thing that tells you a bear is chasing you. You're you're in crisis, you need to survive. It's survival mode. And if the amygdala turns on, then the frontal lobe turns off. And the frontal lobe is the part that we need for all of the basic planning and functioning and communication, just their reasoning ability kind of lives there. So on a very basic format, we always go to the if then this, if this, then this. Uh, and, and so that's, that's where that's coming from. The, the issue that we see with that is if they have experienced trauma from infancy or before birth repeatedly, the brain does not shift back and forth from the remedial portion to the frontal lobe. It stays, it, it, it forgets how to do that. And that frontal lobe does not develop to where they really can't like come down and just think normally and rationally. They stay in that heightened state of awareness, um, and that's the way their brain works now. It does not function like we would think a normal person, a bear in the woods. Once that fear goes away, then we come back down, you know, whew, that was that was really close. 
But these girls, they just keep getting dose after dose after dose after dose until their brain cannot function any other way. So they're always on guard. They may not be manic at that moment or they may not be in attack mode, but they're always on guard and ready to jump at a moment's notice. Um, so that's where I find the difficulty in getting through to them and getting to the real person underneath because I don't think that they know how to be any other way or their brain doesn't know, allow them to be any other way. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so it's easy as a staff person to think things like, why is it she listening to me or I told her this three times or mm-hmm. this is so simple to fill out this paperwork. Why is she being, you know, why does she just not do it? You know, it's easy to kind of fall into that mindset. Um, mm-hmm. But or what we're saying through brain chemistry is that it's not necessarily, you know, that her, her on a brain chemistry level that, that those things might be impacting. Mm-hmm. Someone have something to add to that? Yeah, or even as she's been in the program for some time, and so you would think that this would be routine, this would be normal, there, there shouldn't be any active triggers going on, you know, two, two three months into her time with us. Um, that's usually the time she begins to get permission to uh, go visit family or to be able to, to talk on the phone, and that's usually when we begin to see um, uh, other triggers coming along. She may not be in a in a traumatic situation physically, but like Lisa was saying, because her brain is really kind of trained to go towards the um, the situation or the scenario that's going to trigger that um, that re- that uh, chemical response. Um, she's going to get all upset with her baby daddy or she's going to get into a fight with a a, a sister or she's going to you know have a an argument with her her stepdad or she's going to hear that some you know high school friend has um has been put in jail for drugs or 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 things like that really anything can become a trigger to that because she allows it to and um, so one of the ways that we deal with that on a consistent day-to-day basis is we start every morning with prayer and with meditation and with, then with yoga and so what that does is it begins to teach her how to physically calm herself and really take control of um, reducing her her response and we found that by starting that way and then moving into um, the daily classes and Bible studies and things like that, it, it allows her to process it um, in a way that she wouldn't have been able to do before. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I know one of the kind of core ideas is perhaps um, having a posture of compassion for the women. Um, rather than why are you doing this or, you know, don't you know this isn't the way it should be done, but somehow kind of fostering a posture of compassion. Can anyone speak more to that component? Well, I feel like um, a really important part of that is just being compassionate and helping them. And one thing I wanted to point out about the triggers that we were talking about is they don't often know what their triggers are, and I feel like one of our exactly. one of the things that we can do for them and be compassionate in is being really patient, um, but also helping them identify what triggers 
what what may be triggering them. A lot of women will have that will just be in kind of a funky mood that day, and they don't know what's going on. And, and we can help them identify something that triggered them. I mean, we've had anything from from children triggering, um, just being another child, and they don't have their children, and that's triggering to them. Um, I mean, it could be anything from doing laundry. I mean, little things that you may not think about. It's kind of something we can do is to investigate for them and help them understand what could be triggering them in order to get to those to the bottom of those triggers. So I think that compassion and with that, compassion and putting yourself in a posture of compassion is imperative to what we do. Because um, these women are, like we've said, are in that fight or flight mode and are so um, in their head, in their amygdala, as we would say, and so high in their cortisol that compassion is really what we can do to bring them to a level where we can relate with them. And so it's important, um, one, because God calls us to that, right? And two, it's because it's what they need. Um, and I think that that's, that's the big really important you know yes compassion really has to be the fuel source uh, that we use to serve these women right compassion fuels our patience it fuels our grace and and of course this is compassion from from the Lord Um, but sometimes what we encounter is compassion fatigue while we're working with these women and we work with so much trauma and so much brokenness that eventually uh, if we aren't careful, our compassion can wait, meaning each discharge is a little less painful and each intake is a little less exciting and our prayers become a little more routine uh, rather than individualized for that woman. And our hunger to learn wanes just a little bit because we feel like we're seeing the same scenario over and over and over. And, of course, we all go through seasons where we wonder if we're even effective. Are we even helping her? And so compassion is really this double-edged sword. It's, it's what she needs, and yet we have to put in so much work to keep that compassion present in our behavior, in our tone of voice, um, in our facial expressions. Uh, because these women are so hypervigilant. They can read us and know us better than we can sometimes. So if we are offering false or shallow compassion, they can sense it on a dime, and then we lose access to their heart, which is opposite of what we want. And so we really had to, to take on some, some practical strategies to keep our compassion alive and fueled, um, and one of those is we take on the approach of understanding. If we can press ourselves to continue to learn even just a little bit each week, Uh, and continue to dive deeper to understand what is going on with her, we notice that it builds our resilience to keep our compassion in place when she really does test us and try us. But when the times come and we wane in our hunger to learn and we wane in our hunger to really understand what is happening with her, we'll notice every time there will be a correlation and that our compassion will wane uh, simultaneously. Yeah, thank you for that. I think we could have a whole session on um, compassion fatigue and how to do that as caregivers and may do that in short short order, but thank you for those quick thoughts. That's definitely important. Uh, now, something else I know you're, you're passionate about is kind of the sensory um, sensitivity and how that's related to, to these things. Can you kind of introduce that concept a little bit? Sure, sure. So in, in simple terms and... Um, 
Hillary, if you need to jump in and kind of uh, put more context to what I'm saying, please feel free to do that. Um, Hillary is definitely my person that puts the clinical spin on sometimes what I will say in a generic sense. Uh, but basically, sensory processing disorder um, essentially means that um, the brain has a difficult time receiving uh, sensory input, so receiving information. That could be sound. It could be just trying to tell where your skin starts and stops in space, uh, right? Or maybe it's balance, taste, uh, touch, and we know that. And so, uh, you know, we have learned that there is more to sensory than our five basic senses. Uh, and we've also learned that because our sometimes our brains have a hard time processing uh, those senses, it can cause an underlying and constant layer of anxiety all the time, uh, where the brain is working hard to just understand the environment that it's in. Uh, and so with that, we know that sometimes that alone can prohibit that woman from uh, even having a shot to develop her frontal lobe, meaning get out of fight or flight, right? Um, and so we really have to take some practical approaches to target this. And one of those is, um, for example, we try to make the bedrooms of the woman um, fairly neutral and de-stimulating. So we want the color and the, the livelihood to be in the living room, in the kitchen, maybe even the bathroom. But the place where she lays her head down at night or where she wakes up in the morning or gets dressed during the day, we don't want that to be stimulating with bright, vibrant colors because we understand sometimes that can really be a lot of work for her brain. And she just woke up, you know. Um, other things are we always have access to food. We provide blankets and sometimes weighted blankets for our women. Um, really, the list can go on and on. We try to be sensitive about fragrances in the home. Um, we try to be sensitive about if she is very vocal over and over again about a particular food that she says things like, I can't eat it, it makes me gag, it makes me throw up, instead of us having an approach of saying, well, she's probably just being picky, um, another way we look at that is we try to see if there are a common denominator between each of those foods, because it's likely almost every time it's been a texture issue, where she then doesn't really have that reflex conquered to know how to swallow that food it's really hard for her and so eating that food is stressful and she's saying i don't want to eat it uh, so then we're more mindful of that and we go okay that that's really hard work for her uh we get it it's not a flavor issue um hillary do you have anything else to add to that no i think that's really good um i would just say it's again kind of similar to what i was talking about before is oftentimes they don't know that they have sensory issues and we're finding more and more that trauma and sensory go basically hand in hand so there's something that and i shouldn't say everyone but there's usually something where someone who's experienced trauma is having an issue with sensory wise whether that's loud noises um, whether that's the clothes that they wear, we see that a lot, like something can't be too close to their neck or something like that. And a lot of times, you know, in our home we have, we don't want too low of clothes, like in showing any cleavage or anything like that, but, how, but if anything like a turtleneck could cause extreme amount of sensory issues because something is around their neck, which could be, and I know we've had one or two women where it's related to they've had choking incidents and stuff like that. So we just need to be, again, compassionate and trying to really investigate for them some of these sensory things. I can say a big one is noise. Um, 
if the TV's too loud or if there's 10 people talking at one time or even three people talking at one time, you can see physically on a woman, you can see her shut down. And so knowing things like that are really helpful as well. Yeah, thank you. Foundation House, uh, is, this, is this something you've seen in your own homes or something you've wrestled with? or? Um, we, we've seen some of the issues. Um, we've had a couple of girls who could not stand a lot of people talking and, and would shy away from group activities and things. The biggest issue that we have um, with, like, food preferences and things are the girls relate those back to, that's what I had in jail. I had to eat oatmeal every day. I had to eat bologna every single day. So you can never convince them that that is a food, you know, that they will ever eat again. And so we really just don't try. You know, we make it available to the ones who want it, but, you know, let the other girls know, you know, you don't have to eat this. Um, but mostly I, we have noticed that some girls want to be right with the house parent or the instructor or whoever it is that they're engaging with. They want to be right next to them. And then other girls will not even look in the direction of the person that they are talking to. Um, so that's kind of a space issue, I believe, that they have. Uh, one has the need to be really, really close, and the other one has the need to be, you know, I need my space. Um, those are the, the main issues that I've seen. Can you think of any other, Suzanne? Well, I was just thinking, too, of the, of the other physical symptoms that we see in terms of uh, stomach problems or, yeah, or the sinus digest, infections yeah. or yeah. Di digestive issues, um, which all correlate back if, um, if your body is in survival mode and, you know, and trying to escape the, the figurative bear that's chasing you, then mm -hmm. your, your body isn't really all that concerned with digesting your meal you just had. Um, it's, got, it's got bigger problems to focus on. Mm -hmm. So we, we definitely see that a lot. And um, repetitive, um, things like repetitive bladder infections. And of course, some of that relates back to them not properly taking their medicine. But it also does correlate to this excessive amount of cortisol in their system and, and their inability to reduce their own stress and, and trauma levels. Yeah, thanks. Because we are working at maternity homes, we're kind of curious if, you know, issues of the, how related to this relate to pregnancy or um, infant development, um, you know, those, those early stages um, of, of things. Um, Hillary, can you talk at all about kind of trauma, brain development, and, and, or the early stages of life? Sure. Um, we, you know, a lot of it goes back to the cortisol levels that um, Valerie had been talking about. I can give you an example of a woman who, um, during her pregnancy, lost one of her children, which is, you know, something that we never, ever want to experience. It's a horrible, it's horribly traumatic. So, of course, her cortisol levels are through the roof, right? And she's uber stressed, and that stress is coming out. Um, and she, at the same time, is breastfeeding her newborn baby. And that newborn baby is continually crying and upset and having gastric issues and all of these things 
and she's like, I don't get it. Like, I'm, I'm giving him everything he needs. I'm changing his diaper, et cetera, et cetera. And it's that cortisol that is coming from the woman um, through her breast milk to the baby and causing the baby's cortisol level to be elevated. It's that sensitive. And so that also happens when the woman is pregnant. Um, if the woman is experiencing any sort of uh, trauma, that baby is also getting elevated cortisol levels. And so I would say that 99% of our women that come through our home who are pregnant have just experienced trauma or have experienced trauma during their pregnancy in some way. And I do want to say that trauma could be anything from a car accident to not having food one day um, to sexual abuse. It could be, it's a, it's a gamut of different things. And so they're experiencing trauma, which is causing um, the baby to also have higher levels of cortisol. So one thing we do at Lifehouse is that is why that cortisol is also so important and why we address that on the front end and do what we can to help alleviate that or lower the cortisol level is because we also want to help the baby. Um, we're serving the woman, but we're also serving the baby. Um, so when the baby's born, a lot of times, um, if they've had elevated stressful cortisol throughout their pregnancy, they will be more fussy babies, or they'll be have some gastric issues and stuff like that. And so, I think one of the biggest things we can do is educating our women on how to. I love the fact that you guys do yoga in the morning or meditation. I think that's so fantastic because it's starting off every day lowering their cortisol levels, and that is ultimately helping their baby as well. And so if we can educate them on, look, if you can learn some coping strategies to stay more calm, it's ultimately going to help your baby as well. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of um, women don't know that, and so then when the baby's born and it has elevated cortisol levels, it's showing very similar symptoms to how an adult would show. It's just high stress, really upset, um, and that can carry on um, into their childhood as well. Um, we see um, children who were born with some sort of traumatic birth or had trauma in the womb who later on have elevated cortisol levels as well. It's all connected. So what we do is so vital because we are dealing with the woman in pregnancy and so we can not only, we can help just, we can't, or we can help more than just the woman. We can help the baby, and that baby ultimately, um, we're helping the baby through the rest of its life. So it's really important um, that we're dealing with these cortisol levels. We're dealing with um, the stress levels of the women um, for, for the children's life later on. Yeah, thank you. Um, that really puts into context how um, the impact of our work is. Um, we're getting close to time, perhaps as a, um, as a way of winding up our, our thoughts here today. Um, each of our panelists could give either something that, that they wanted to say that didn't have a chance or a way to make this practical in your home, maybe that hasn't been said, or any just kind of remark, that a closing remark. If we could work through each of our panelists, perhaps, um, as, a, as a way of drawing, drawing to a close today. I can start. Um, one thing that I, I think is really important in talking about this issue and that I, we bring into our home as much as we can and um, I definitely try to bring into courses and stuff like that is fun. And a lot of these women don't know how to have fun. Yeah. Um, they have for so long been so stressed that they're like, what, like laughter is foreign to them. 
And so a lot of times what we try to do is do something fun. Um, I know that we do um, every semester or so we'll do classes and we'll open it up with like a silly game. And some of them are like, oh, this is really dumb. I don't want to do this. But at the end of it, they have fun and they request to do it again. And so that is also helping your cortisol levels. It's also helping um, your dopamine and your serotonin and all of these things by having fun and doing something fun. We use um, coloring a lot um, as a coping skill of something that's just kind of random and fun, but it's also calming. So just finding little things for the women to be able to do to have fun. Um, I think that the Lord created us to enjoy our life as well, and they've had hard lives. And so anything that we can do to just bring some fun and some laughter and silliness into the room, I think helps. Awesome example. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll follow Hillary. Um, and I will say, um, you know, one thing that I find often is uh, people will, will comment or remark to me and say, well, I, I'm not a clinician or I'm not a professional. Um, you know, I'm just Sally Jane uh, that loves the Lord and wants to help these women, but I don't understand all of this stuff. You know, I don't know how to do this. And so uh, often what I encourage people who maybe hear a topic like this and possibly feel overwhelmed or intimidated by the information or maybe feel like their program could be inadequate, uh, I hear that a lot, um, I would just encourage them to know that this, this information is now made available to everyone. Um, and so I just want to encourage a love for learning and a genuine interest. Um, so don't be afraid to Google uh, two book recommendations that I recommend to everyone. Um, is, uh, one is The Connected Child. And so that is great because it also has some great charts uh, to refer back to whenever maybe a resident has some puzzling behavior. Uh, you can go back and reference that. So it's not just reading a textbook and trying to memorize it. Uh, spoken in very simple, easy-to-apply language. And then the second book is called The Body Keeps the Score. And so that book is also written in very understandable language and can help bring us up to speed on the impact of trauma on the body to give more context to this subject. So um, there's no need to feel overwhelmed or overly intimidated. Uh, it is very easy to understand, and thankfully there's amazing doctors and clinicians out there that have shared their knowledge with us. Um, through all kinds of websites, blogs, podcasts, and, and of course, books. Fantastic. Thanks, Valerie. <clears throat> and I think, too, um, one thing we need to think about is that there are a wide variety of types of trauma. There's, there's the obvious ones, uh, a rape or um, an incident of abuse or a car accident or, or something specific that these women can point back to as kind of a... Um, a starting point for their situation. However, there's also those kind of small T traumas that get easily overlooked. Um, it, the emotions and beliefs and, and physical sensations uh, occur in both the, the mind and the body. Um, it, it can relate to uh, concentration issues, self-esteem issues, emotional regulation. Um, it, it's most common in neglected or abused children 
and it can really become a, um, a negative spiral when a kind of a big T trauma were to happen. You already have all of this underlying trauma of, of um, food insecurity or of domestic violence within the home or learning disabilities that, that cause uh, the, the school environment to be a, a negative trigger for her, um, things like that. And then when a bigger trauma comes along, a, a robbery, a rape, um, she has no real grounding to support herself and, and she spirals out of control into drugs and alcohol, um, uh, further into abusive relationships that, that further reinforce how she perceives herself to be. And so not always is, is the girl coming into your door is going to be able to say, oh, this is what caused it. Um, a lot of times it really is just a, a maladaptive lifestyle that she doesn't know how to get out of. Uh, thank you. Yeah, great, great examples of how both little and little T, I heard you say, and then the big, the big T as well. Thank you for that. Well, all of you, thank you so much. I mean, this is this is just super um, exciting and interesting as as this starts to unfold. I know a lot of our homes are intrigued by the topic, and to have to be able to tap into your insight and wisdom all in one place and in one discussion is really a great gift. So, um, thank you for talking kind of this introductory into brain development and uh, different chemistry levels and how that all impacts 